Hello, this is Joe Peters with In the Know of Joe. I'm about to interview Professor James Hughes, who is a retired dean of the Blaustein School at Rutgers, and we're going to discuss the general economic conditions in central New Jersey and how it affects our real estate market. Hopefully you can listen in. Okay, this is Joe Peters with In the Know of Joe, and on the phone with me is Professor, Professor James Hughes from Rutgers University. I'm going to let Jim introduce himself. Yeah, I am a university professor at Rutgers, uh, which means uh, I have the privilege of, of moving around between schools and units to do my research and do my teaching. Uh, I had been dean of the is still the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy uh, for uh, 22 years and um, just past my 50th year at Rutgers. So I'm certainly one of the uh, uh, senior citizens at the university is a nice way to say it rather than, uh, you know, the old uh, codgers or something like that. Marilyn, Marilyn made it to 33 years at the uh, Rutgers Medical School. She was in the uh, admin end of that business. And uh, 50 years is quite an accomplishment. She was pretty proud she made it to 33. My joke, I couldn't find another job, so I stayed on. <laughs> what was the old joke that those who can't teach, teach or something like yeah. that? Yeah, those who... Uh, those who can't teach. Those who can't teach, that's it. Okay, so good. So we're, we're in a, uh, you know, I'm from looking at life from the real estate viewpoint, but it's much broader than that in my book because I have a general interest in the counties and the state that I work in. And at the same time, the the real estate market is affected by all the other economic factors throughout the state, which is an area that your expertise is much deeper than mine. So I'm looking today at several issues facing the people trying to find or sell a house. And the biggest one is inventory. I mean, we're literally sitting with 40% less inventory than we had a year ago. And a year ago, it was like 20% less than two years ago. Uh, and it's not going in the right direction. It's, it's coming down. Um, secondly, our unemployment numbers in New Jersey are at 7.4%, roughly 50% higher than a nation, which just hit a 4.6%. Um, I can see that the nation has, uh, and I can't find that number for New Jersey, the nation has about 10 million jobs available and uh, and I'm probably 7.4%, um, I'm looking for the numbers, 7.4% represents uh, a lot less people out of work than the jobs that we have available. And I would think New Jersey's probably the same proportion, if not worse. Uh, just to start off with, what makes New Jersey roughly 50% higher unemployed than the nation at this point in time. Yeah, that's, that's sort of an unexplained phenomenon because when we look at uh, other data, uh, the state isn't doing as bad as perhaps we uh, think it's doing. 
for example, uh, the unfilled job openings nationally are, are 10.4 million jobs, which is really a stratospheric level. Uh, we've had, I think, four months in a row where it's been above 10 million unfilled jobs. Right. Uh, and that's the, the rate there is 6.6%. Now, the rate is in the numerator is the number of unfilled jobs. Uh, the denominator is uh, total employment uh, in the nation plus the number of unfilled jobs. And that rate is 6.6%. Okay. In Jersey, it's actually 7.1%. And that so translates that far off. So, and that translates into 300,000 unfilled jobs. So uh, we have a greater a higher uh, rate of unfilled jobs than the nation as a whole. So uh, it does reflect uh, many different factors, whether uh, people don't want to fill those jobs, whether they're not qualified to fill those jobs, uh, or there's competition certainly for, for skilled workers. Because again, uh, New Jersey is linked to New York City. We have about 400,000 people who work in New York City uh, so we're in competition uh, there, although New York's uh, job rate is at 5.7%. But again, that's the state as a whole. And right. We have upstate and New York City, so it's a difference between the two. So we do have a high unemployment rate, but we've, <clears throat> we were hit far harder than the nation uh, in terms of uh, of uh, the jobs we lost. The nation, two month period from you know when the great contraction occurred, February to April of 2020, uh, the nation lost uh, uh, an equivalent number of jobs gained the past 10 years. Uh, so 10 years of job growth was, was wiped out in two months. In New Jersey, uh, the 10 years of, of job growth were followed by uh, a number double, a loss double the number of the 10-year job gain. So uh, New York, New Jersey, the Northeast, we were the first ones hit by the downturn. Uh, but the New Jersey has, uh, again, during that period, lost 500, let me just see what they lost, 700, 717,000 jobs, uh, really, in two months. Uh, we've regained about 513,000 jobs, which is a recovery rate of 71.5%. So since April of last year, uh, we've, we've gained over half a million jobs, 513,000, recovery rate of 71.5. That does lag the national rate of 81.5, but it, the differential is not huge and we got hit a lot harder. Uh, during the during the downturn, in terms of the shutdown and the like, so overall, in terms of job growth, the economy, uh, we're, I think uh, we're doing as well as could be expected. And to hit, what's interesting is to hit that seventy-one point five recovery rate uh, took us eighteen months uh, through September, uh, and that's the last data we have. Uh, eighteen months. It took us sixty months to reach a 71% recovery rate following uh, the 0709 uh, Great Recession there. So 
Um, it has been a relatively fast recovery for the state as a whole. And then perhaps the unemployment rate uh, is due to uh, layoffs uh, that, that occurred in New York City, since so many people in New Jersey work in New York City. Uh, right. New York is far behind New Jersey in recoveries. That may be reflected somewhat in our unemployment rate. Uh, but uh, again, given past recoveries, I think we're doing okay. Uh, so That's good to hear. That, and so for the demand side of the housing equation, uh, you know, that's certainly uh, a positive for the housing market in New Jersey suburbs, uh, although millennial aspirants uh, uh, are fined in many cases due to the inventory shortages that you mentioned. I've dealt only with one set of buyers that were successful this year. I dealt with about 10 sales. And the sales naturally were all good news, all but one, which was in a difficult, it was like two generations of house melded together. It was hard to sell, but everything else sold the day it came on. That one took a couple of months. Uh, but on the buyer side, uh, and everything I listed sold either at above asking or just under asking very quickly. So if you're a seller, it's good news. If you're a buyer, it's really not that good news, but there are houses out there. What, I, what I'm looking at from the buyer side is that it is typically the two income millennials that are looking, or maybe two incomes going to one because they're having their first child. And then um, the, the hourly workers are typically not our home buyers. I mean, there's about 30 to 40% of both Hunter and Somerset County where my business does most of it that probably are going to be renters or are not going to be home buyers. And they were hit harder than the salaried workers who in effect uh, are the home buyers. And what we discovered from my outlook, which is not a statewide outlook, it's more of a hundred in Somerset. And it's interesting that we just did the census because there's some new figures that show us a little interesting trains, trends in those two counties. But for my interest, selling a house is simple. Buying a house is not that difficult as long as you can get up above 450. If you're going to try and look in the twos and threes, there's no houses. Everything comes on, it's bought by an investor immediately that's clean. Um, and I don't see that changing, but the unemployment rate that is still unemployed, preponderance is down there, not up. We're, we're not out of buyers. And it looks like for the next six or seven years, we're not going to be impacted by the birth rate implosion. There's, there's millennial buyers coming at us in the 200 to 400, which is where they typically buy in our two counties, Hunter and Somerset. But a lot of them had a very difficult time and got priced out of the market to some extent. Um, what would you see change that? I don't know if that's a fair question, but. <laughs> yeah, a little historical a little... perspective and basically, uh, you know, we, we don't build starter single family homes anymore. Uh, we, you know, we don't build affordable housing anymore. I mean, the economics are difficult. But if we go back to the post-war years, 
uh, of, of roughly from 1950 to 1970, uh, we were adding to New Jersey's housing inventory a uh, thousand units per week for a thousand straight weeks. That was a million housing units. Wow. Uh, many of them were the Levitt style Cape Cod ranch burgers uh, and the like small houses uh, at bigger as time went by. But uh, <clears throat> that was the greatest housing production period in the state's history. And uh, a lot of them were starter homes for GIs coming back from World War II and then uh, uh, depression era generation uh, purchasing homes in the 60s. Uh, going forward. Uh, there were no environmental regulations. Uh, growth was seen as good in those decades. Uh, uh, towns were uh, proud of, uh, of the fact that they were growing and the like. Uh, over the past quarter of a century, those attitudes have changed dramatically. You know, we now have to build uh, what we call finished machines for living. You know, these the appurtenance uh, that you would want inside them. There are strict environmental regulations, uh, energy regulations and the like that didn't exist, you know, in the 50s and the 1960s. Uh, and all the easily developed land with utilities was used up. So growth was then forced out into uh, places like Western Somerset and Hunterdon counties and the like that didn't have utilities. Uh, so it, in those areas, it's very, very expensive to build. Uh, a lot of environmental regulations. Uh, so we're, we're in sort of the development cycle where uh, affordable housing is, is one of our most difficult problems. And there's no silver bullet. There's no easy solution uh, to it. Uh, municipalities uh, that are on rail lines that, that have uh, options where people could work in uh, Newark or New York City as well as working in the suburbs. There's no developable land. Uh, in a lot of desirable communities that have a reputation for good school systems are essentially built out. So again, I, uh, I'm not smart enough to come up with a solution to the problem. I, uh, I can appreciate that because it's a problem that I think got compounded over the years. Um, Dennis Sullivan, who's the mayor of Somerville, was nice enough to walk me around town and introduce me to some of the merchants and show me some of what was going on. And his focus, and he's been there, he'll be there 50 years, both he and his wife, March, two beautiful people, um, 50 years and not next year, but the year after, um, they're, they're like Mr. and Mrs. Somerville. Uh, everything that's going up, with one exception, is rent only, two bedrooms, and not sort of focused on family living, more focused on starter homes. Um, walking wallets is a term that's used. Um, it's like Hoboken to the east, to the west. Um, it's, it's a beautiful place to start a family, but once you've got your second child, these units are probably not big enough for you. So you probably spill out and live in the area after that, which I think is, a, but he's got like 1200 units coming up this year. And then one exception is there are, um, where the train station that's being refurbished is, um, 
some townhouses being built, but it is such a spot market. They can't even tell you what the house is going to cost when it's finished. And it's pretty hard to sell a house that way. So that's an example of what I found in 100 in Somerset County going right. But what I found more of are towns that rejurisdicted their zoning 20 years ago to not maybe have so many people that the school system couldn't keep up with it. And those rules are still in effect. They haven't been rethought and maybe they don't need to be in a lot of instances, but in some instances do restrict people from buying and building. Uh, I'll give you a good example. If you look through my, I'm based out of Warren Watchung area, um, business-wise, everything up there being built are one acre, 3,600 square feet, and people are thinking more of, um, you know, 2,000, 2,400 square feet and um, half the price what these are being built for. So it's like I'm half Polish. It's like I can say this because yeah. I'm a Polish bridge builder. The, the prices are off, but the high part and the, the buying power is down at the low part. So these people are becoming renters because they can't buy. And I don't know, because I've talked to a lot of the mayors, what changes quickly in order to change that. And from what you just said, there may not be a heck of a lot that can be done because the environmental restrictions and the easily gone properties are gone. Um, so then I, I look a little deeper and there's a, a website that talks about the cycle of the development of towns. And it talks about Toronto as being a good example of doing things right, where typically you build a town or the town grows up and then you build around it and you build on the fringes of it, but you've got to educate the children in those houses. And then eventually you've given all these tax abatements and the infrastructure starts to decay and the town has problems financially moving forward. And sometimes they satisfy it by bringing in commercial, which I think Bridgewater would be a great example of it uh, to help the, the tax rate down. But it then becomes what we've wound up with. Either you're going to live in a multifamily unit or you're probably not going to find something. And then what they said they did right in Toronto, which was the example they kept using, is they zone double and quadruple housing units into the um, zoning ordinance so that they could have reasonable housing that is owned rather than rented. And Pennsylvania has, uh, I don't know, I looked at it recently, but in terms, I think they mandated, without going through Mount Laurel calculations and you know, all the uh, twists and turns you have to do in New Jersey and providing housing. Uh, they just say, well, if it's a new development coming in of single family homes, 10% uh, have to be affordable. Uh, right. That's certainly easy to administer and not very complex. Uh, but with, you know, towns do go and, and states do go through these long development cycles. Uh, and until recently, I guess the great example is Austin, Texas. People have been flocking to Texas because of affordable housing, at least compared to New Jersey uh, and the Northeast. Uh, but uh, 
Austin is also getting these wonderful high-tech industries and the like, and is causing an enormous inflow of people. But all of a sudden, it's not affordable anymore. Prices have bid up uh, right. substantially. Uh, and in uh, North Carolina, which is you know, certainly outpaced in New Jersey uh, in population growth, household growth, they're in the early stage of the development cycle. Uh, and in the early stage of the development cycle, uh, you're getting all the revenues, property tax revenues, uh, income tax revenues for the state uh, based on the new growth and the like. But the uh, costs are essentially deferred until maybe 10 or 20 years later. So early on in the development cycle, you're getting all the benefits you know, the revenues, uh, right. but the costs eventually catch up to you uh, and, and you have a problem uh, and growth slows. But that, you know, the costs of housing in New Jersey and the Northeast, why we're growing uh, much slower than the nation. But the, the census numbers that you mentioned, uh, if we have time, uh, it's really an interesting phenomenon and I think a really misleading phenomenon. So do you want me to go over those briefly? Yeah. Um, let me tell you what I observed just at a really high level. It looks like Hunterdon County over the last 10 years maintained a status quo of about 115,000 people. We actually grew up by a few. And Somerset County actually picked up somewhere between 3.4%. Uh, Hunterdon County has always been a little more affluent than Somerset County, but they're both very affluent counties. And uh, the the breakdown of the population seems to have changed where Somerset much more integrated than Hunterdon, but Hunterdon and moving in that direction. So the thing I see that's interesting is that Somerset is much younger, almost five years than Hunterdon County and Hunterdon County has been growing. So from a layman's viewpoint, that's, that's interesting because People either are not finding what they're looking for out here and moving here, but that's what I do for a living. I bring people from Somerset County to Hunterdon County because they can't find it over there. Um, but the, the birth rate is declining. The aging is increasing, and um, there don't, doesn't seem to be much end in sight of all of that. So that's my, my 60 seconds, but let's, let's let the expert talk. Well, I mean, it may be. There's probably really two Somerset counties, uh, northern and southern, and I just made up that partition because right. I see a lot of growth and development along uh, Route 206 through Hillsborough and Montgomery. Uh, right. And my, both have, uh, particularly Hillsborough has a lot of rental housing uh, being constructed. Uh, it's not open yet uh, near Amwell Road. Then farther south in Montgomery, there's some huge single-family subdivisions going in there. Uh, and that's quite different from northern uh, uh, Somerset and Bedminster, places like that. Right. But one of the interesting things was the, the Census Bureau does population estimates each year, uh, both for counties, uh, and for states, and I didn't look in detail yet on the counties in New Jersey, uh, but the, the, the estimates each year uh, are 
based on administrative records, you know, official registrations of births, official registrations of deaths, uh, and that's net, the difference is net natural increase, and estimates of migration. And they, for migration, uh, they have, they use, they get data from the Immigration and Naturalization Service on international uh, migration, which is now in, in Homeland Security Department. Uh, and then for internal to the United States, uh, they rely on uh, IRS uh, tax returns. And the, uh, what the Census Bureau does is takes those tax returns in, in, in concert with the IRS and okay. uh, at the address this year and compare it to the address last year. And that way they can estimate of where people are moving and there are other informal sources such as postal change data that we can now access and the like. Uh, so based on those estimates, the, the 2020 uh, previous estimate was the state would have uh, 8.9 million people and it would only grow 100,000 for the entire state. Uh, it's mainly due to net migration losses of about 400,000 people uh, over the decade. That is 400,000 more people moving out of, the, out of New Jersey as against uh, uh, people coming into New Jersey. Uh, so that's, the next, Bureau, that's the next decade. Yeah. So okay. uh, the, the census 2020 actually found 9.3 million people in New Jersey rather than 8.9 million. So it was a growth of 400,000 rather than uh, one or 500,000 uh, rather than 100,000. So difference between 8.9 million and 9.4 million. So the question is why? What, where does that, what's the explanation uh, for that? Now, one of the explanations is, well, that out-migration really didn't occur. Uh, that, five, that net loss of people. And that would, that would be good news to some degree because it means the IRS uh, couldn't even match addresses from this year's returns to right. last. If that's the case, take every deduction you want in your income tax return because they're not smart enough to catch uh, any exaggerations. <laughs> uh, but I think the IRS is a lot better than that. Uh, the yeah. other possibility which I lean towards is uh, given the administration in Washington, uh, the Northeast in particular, uh, New Jersey, uh, wanted a better census count. So all kinds of resources were put into uh, get, out the, get out the count. A lot of non-governmental organizations uh, were making sure everybody was counted, particularly in the state's urban areas where there's a possibility of missing them. So even New York City, the, the city planning department uh, found out because uh, the Census Bureau gave them all, they have all the address records. So they gave the city planning department the address records and right. the city planning department found about 400,000 addresses that the Census Bureau missed. So probably a similar thing happened in New Jersey. Uh, and again, in uh 2018, 2019, and into uh, 2020, before the great contraction hit, uh, the state was flush with money. There was a lot of resources. We're at the peak of the business cycle. So uh, I really do believe we had a great 2020 census count. Uh, 
In contrast, in 2010, uh, uh, the effort uh, to ensure an accurate census count was really hindered. We were just coming out of the devastating 07, 09 recession. There wasn't a lot of resources. Uh, there wasn't a political motivation uh, to get an accurate count. So uh, the bottom line would be most of the growth uh, that was registered in the 2020 census, uh, people that were already here, but we missed them in 2010, uh, but we finally counted them uh, in 2020. Interesting. I think that that's a more, uh, at least in my mind, a more reasonable explanation rather than people. I mean, we all know people are leaving New Jersey uh, because us and the like, and we all know people who have left. Uh, so uh, that couldn't be the only reason misread that statistic whatsoever. But what it does do uh, provide us with some methodological problems that it's uh, you can't predict the future if you look at change from 2010 to 2020. Uh, we really, probably, we didn't really grow by 500,000 people uh, if the people were already here. So a projection would be highly misleading. And then uh, the census uh, 2020 uh, was taken where the official date is April, uh, and April was the bottom of the Great Recession. So census 2020 is a good good of what the world was like prior to uh, the great contraction and prior to the pandemic. So it tells us nothing what, about what's happened during the last 18 to 20 months uh, since April uh, 2020. So uh, a lot of methodological problems that are, that are going to keep economic forecasters in business, I think, for the next couple <laughs> of years, trying to explain away all these disparities that we find. So going forward, I, I, I see a couple of things on the horizon that will change from the vision that I am typically looking through, which is how is it going to affect real estate? And one is that emerging disruptive technologies may cause unemployment into higher level paying jobs, such as autonomous transportation and whatever. Um, that's going to cause us new problems because if that truly happens, okay, I mean, we have a lot of people forecasting we'll have self-driving cars in three to five years. So if it doesn't happen in three to five, it's going to happen seven to 10. It's going to happen. But if you start to affect people who are now earning really good blue collar wages, such as truck drivers, I'm not picking on them. I think they're wonderful people, but if you're going to have less truck drivers and more unemployment and, you know, somebody, I'm not going to pick on either party, but somebody said, we'll teach them how to code. No, you're not going to teach them how to code. I'm sorry. Um, I think that's a wonderful idea, but we should be starting in the fourth grade doing things like that, not when people are 50 years old. Um, it causes a need for something that's been raised um, called UBI, which I'm not sure is considered socialism or not. I've read up on it, and it depends which way you look at it, but we need to help people going forward if this problem is gonna affect New Jersey, and I, I think it will. One of the, Go ahead. the experience we had when we reached the, uh, I guess, 
in 2019 was really Goldilocks economy nationally and in New Jersey. Uh, and we had record high levels of employment, record low levels of unemployment, and inflation was nowhere to be found. But that peak of, of high, high employment and low unemployment, uh, which meant that there were labor shortages, uh, did to the bottom end, those at the bottom of the economic ladder. Uh, uh, pay raises uh, uh, were actually greater at those lower, uh, lower income levels because of labor shortages. So, and I think that's what the Federal Reserve wanted to keep looking more at full employment and not worrying about inflation. They recognize that fact. So uh, the best way we can uh, uh, help the lower income strata uh, is labor shortages. Uh, again, it's gonna be inflationary, uh, but uh, it's gonna push up wages due to those basic shortages. So that's a, uh, that's a key issue. We're still gonna need a lot of those frontline workers, face-to-face -face workers and the like. And you're right, they're not all gonna be coders. Uh, they're not uh, uh, gonna be rocket scientists. And that's what's that's where the highest quit rates are now, and quits are at record levels, which indicates a dissatisfaction with some of those jobs. Uh, but also, uh, a high quit rate usually indicates there's confidence in the economy, and that uh, people recognize there are better jobs out there, there are better career opportunities out there. So I'm not going back to the, my pre-pandemic job. Uh, in uh, a lot of other reasons, uh, but you're right. I mean, I think the scale of technological change coming forward is going to be uh, uh, absolutely, uh, uh, you know, out of the ballpark compared to the past. And again, it was uh, COVID nineteen was a gasoline in the fire warrant. Uh, let me just cite a couple statistics that I that I've pulled out. I don't know if I sent you the slide. But this is the size of microprocessors, you know, the key driving force in a computer and our cell phone and the like. Uh, 1995, uh, the Intel Pentium Pro came out. Uh, and it had five, this is like one square inch of silicon, 5.5 million transistors in it. In 1995, that increased capability really started in uh, mobile technology. Uh, it started uh, really great connectivity to the internet. Uh, and the economy was, was starting to be reinvented. Uh, 11 years later, the Intel Pentium D came out. That had 362 million transistors in it compared to 5.5 million uh, 11 years earlier. And 2006 was really the, uh, the, the, the uh, iPhone was released, all other types of iPhones were released. Uh, we really went mobile. Workers were untethered from fixed in place uh, information technology systems. Uh, and that's what really drove the past decade and the change in the nature of work and the, and the shape of the economy. Okay. This year, uh, 2021, uh, uh, Apple's new uh, advance uh, is the M1 
one max they're not using the intel chips uh, the m1 max uh, has 57 billion transistors that's a b 57 billion transistors in the micro right. that is going to unleash some technological capabilities that's what will make uh, autonomous vehicles much much more efficient than they are today when you add that uh, computer technology in. And all, all automobiles now are really just sort of uh, mobile computers for the most part, given the dependency on computer chips there and the shortage really almost crippling automobile production today. So we have an uncharted future that is just gonna have a number of disruptions in it that we're gonna be uh, forced to uh, adapt to in order to effectively survive. I think uh, if I just pick one, I think the most disruptive thing I've seen recently has been the EV uh, field where electronic vehicles are replacing ice, which is internal combustion vehicles at a greater and greater rate. Right now it's one to 2% of all the vehicles, but by all recent technology, forecasts, it's going to be more like 50% by the year 2030. And if you take a look at the leading EV manufacturer, which is Tesla, um, headed by a person, so some person, I mean, I just sit and listen to him and am in awe, but some people say he's got to be an alien. Nobody on earth thinks <laughs> like that. Um, he's taken Tesla to, if you add the market cap of GM, Chrysler and Ford, it comes up to about 112 billion. He's better than 10 times that right now and moving. I mean, it's getting better every quarter. That's disruptive. I mean, we're, we're going to move so many things, so many places so quickly that just everybody that used to work in the gas stations or depend on mobile ice engines, internal combustion engines for a living are going to be out of work, and then you know the the things that result from it, which are um, self-driving and autonomous. Uh, I mean, they're literally talking about having autonomous cars in the replacement of the Uber driver. So the Uber, which was a disruptive technology ten years ago, is going to get disrupted um, because what. Hertz was doing by buying, committing to the million cars, is they're going to take a half a million of them and sublease them to Uber drivers and actually make it to be a self-driving fleet eventually. So it's driverless in some instances, if not all. I, I just want to find Elon. Everybody thought Elon Musk was crazy. Came uh, probably the world's most efficient battery maker. Uh, uh, yeah. Use, use that technology to, to power his vehicles. But there's a lot of issues that, that really remain to be teased out. Uh, my wife was president of the Board of Public Utilities, so she's very familiar with the grid. Uh, and some of the analyses she's seen is the neighborhood, if everybody had an electric vehicle uh, and were recharging it at night, uh, you blow out. <laughs> the electrical system in your neighborhood. <laughs> Just can't handle, uh, uh, given, given the capacity of the grid today, uh, you know, we can't, we, if we put uh, 
10 million V one year's full production of I guess total vehicles around 15 to 17 million nationally. If all those were electric, uh, we'd short circuit America's grid, I think, uh, if That's everybody was trying to recharge those at once. Uh, the second one is uh, again, oh, I think the actual carbon footprint saving of electrical vehicles is probably overstated. Uh, New Jersey, uh, I, I think nationally, 60% uh, of electricity comes from fossil fuel. Uh, so when you're charging your electric vehicle, uh, it's not uh, carbon-free electricity. You know, it's 60% produced by carbon. Uh, so that has to be considered in there. And it's one of the reasons why we really have great uh, and capabilities. And then all the components that go into the manufacture of that vehicle in terms of the battery and the like. I guess one of the features in today's uh, uh, media accounts was the shortage of cobalt from the Congo and the like. And right. carbon intensive extraction procedure to get that. Uh, so yeah, we will be getting a, a tremendous amount of electric, you know, electric vehicles going forward. But that's going to disrupt the elect the uh, the electrical grid, uh, the, the more power generation, uh, perhaps reinstating nuclear power. Like I mean, New Jersey. Uh, Prior to one of the shutdowns, you know, we had one of the highest rates of nuclear I think 10 years ago, it was 50% 50, 50 of our electricity was nuclear. Uh, so that's carbon free. So the, we've got a lot of different public policy issues to confront these that are gonna have to be uh, effectively solved. Uh, we try to implement all the new technological capabilities that we're now capable of. I think the other thing that it's always standing on the shoulders of the people that went before you, but I, I looked at an analysis as to, okay, well, now you're saving all of this ice wasted, internal combustion wasted energy. What you should do with some of your savings is develop your own solar farm in, out of your house in order it can't be done everywhere because of lots of reasons. but take it to the next level and say that if you're going to have an ice car, you've got to commit to doing your own generation of, not ice car, but an electronic car. EV. Take it to the next level and commit to using some of the savings to put back into the grid by having your own mini farm. And then it comes into batteries. But so much of this, I mean, this is just one little corner of the world, Jim. We're looking at biotech. We're looking at just, just what AI is doing. And there's what you went through was more of the more philosophy of things will double in power and have in price every so many years. But there's another theory out there that I've been reading up on. I forget its name, but it says and it becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to make things as things go on. It's not in proportion to the speed that it's picking up, but... Um, our artificial intelligence, which is now feeding on itself, is going to give us so many new frontiers. It's mind-boggling and disruptive. Yeah, the uh, impact for, for photovoltaic systems, 
We installed ours 18 years ago, so we've run out of renewable energy credits and uh, my basic uh, cred is we've generated over 200 million megawatts uh, uh, via our system since uh, we installed it. However, uh, it feeds back into the grid. Uh, the battery ba backups now, you're looking only at eight hours. Now, right. you know, that's certainly uh, useful, but if you have an extended uh, blackout uh, for three or four days, and we've had a couple long blackouts the past 20 yeah. years, uh, you're out of luck. Uh, or even if it just rains for, if it rains for eight days straight. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we really need uh, to develop Abilities, I would think 48 hours or so, uh, an affordable uh, package uh, to have that installed. Now, again, I could be wrong on the capabilities that exist, but this was several years ago. But it, it, it's a difficult transition. It's not going to flow very, very easily. Especially when we live, we talked about this in the past, when we live in rural areas like yours, where we haven't even got high speed internet out to these people yet. Uh, we haven't solved two, two generations or a generation of those problems. And, and we're gonna have newer problems coming at us at a much, much, much faster rate. One other question before we break. I, I heard somebody say this, um, I'm in my seventies, I'm still working full time. And I was at a group meeting where somebody said, people are lasting longer. I said, I like the way you say that. <laughs> it's, it's a natural phenomenon. We're not having as many children at the other end. And the people that we've got are lasting longer, many of them working well into their 80s today. And how do you see that affecting the New Jersey economy going forward? Over the past two decades, uh, what inhibited New Jersey from actually being a net population loser uh, was international immigration. Uh, so right. to the degree we're not producing bodies, uh, there are eight, nine billion people around the world, many of them that would love to come to the United States for the economic opportunity. So if we had certainly a rational, uh, again, this is a big expectation to, to, for Washington to do, but if we had a rational immigration policy, uh, wouldn't worry about uh, not producing, having very low fertility rates. I think our fertility rate, uh, 1.7, uh, or no, it's trending toward 1.6. Placement level fertility, uh, 2.1. That is every, uh, if, if, if a woman experienced all the age-specific birth rates at present, she would produce 2.1 children. The peak of the baby boom in 57, it was 3.8. Now we're trending toward 1.6. Italy is 1.2. Japan is very similar to that level. So if we want workers uh, to save the economy, I don't think you can force people to have children if they don't want to have children. Uh, you know, the, the one source, readily available source, uh, is certainly uh, immigration. Well, it obviously works because I think Somerset County's pharma industry 
um, is totally immigration dependent now as far as millennial workers, because the jobs that people are going to Austin and the Carolinas for in New Jersey are being filled by people who have immigrated in and are very happy to do those jobs to start with. So that's a great observation. And then you've got all the skills that are sitting out there. I talked to Bonnie Duncan in um, United Way, and she loves to use seniors to, I hate to use the word use, but she, she utilizes their skills in helping people prepare taxes and doing investment, things like things that are non-licensed um, jobs that um, gives them something to do and helps the next the generation of seniors coming along. But um, I mean, I look at just opening gates and letting people in versus selecting the people that come. And I heard somebody do a expose on this about a year ago and said, if you wanted to go to work in Italy and immigrate to Italy, you would have to prove that there's a job there that nobody else wants. Yet, if you want to do the same thing in the United States, specifically New Jersey, there's nothing to stop you. If you can fulfill all the paperwork and come in legally, it doesn't look like there's much to stop you through other paths right now, but I mean, we're, uh, it seems like if we have a need, we can fulfill the need through immigration, like we're doing in Somerset County's pharma industry, um, by being more selective on the people that we're inviting into the country. It seems like the only reason we let people in today is to get their vote. And I think that's never going to go away, but I also think it's just an absurd set of rules. Um, well, that's wow. the problem. To straighten that out requires action in Washington, and I think events of the past decade realized when you have a dysfunctional Washington, the outcome is not going to be good public policy, to say the least. No. Uh, you're right on the, I mean, the oldest baby boomer, the baby boomer 46 to 64, and that was sort of the 800-pound demographic gorilla. Uh, it's what ruled New Jersey. Uh, the baby boom uh, has most of the resources. Uh, it still stands the highest level uh, of organizational leadership positions. But the oldest boomer is now 75. And one of my favorite academic spectator sports is terrorizing baby boomers about their getting older telling them that one time they used to rock around the clock. Now they're <laughs> limping around the block. Uh, but my, my most severe taunt uh, is telling them that they're in the pre-deceased stage of the life cycle. Uh, and it usually brings up horrible uh, faces uh, when they think about that. And then I say, you know, I've been desperately trying to stay in the pre-deceased stage and not move on to the next one. <laughs> That's funny. I remember you saying the rock around the, the limp around the block, but the predeceased is funny. I think a lot of us are in that phase. And unfortunately, that's where the disruptive technologies is helping out. We have a lot of fully functional people. Um, just look at Warren Buffett and his sidekick there. I can't think of his name right now are in their nineties and they're still limping around the block very healthfully. Um, and that's fact, the, when we were, I mean, <clears throat> were not subject to the stresses and physical abuse uh, when we were a manufacturing state. 
you know, back, right. in, back in World War II, I think 55% of all the jobs were in manufacturing. Uh, and a lot of them, I used to call them 3D jobs, dirty, dangerous, and dead, like John's Manville uh, and the like. So a lot of bodies were worn out. A lot of bodies were subject to environmental pollution and the like. Uh, and fortunately, uh, many operations today, uh, you are not subject to those uh, harmful elements. Great. And I guess that's where, um, what is the term that you're always looking for? The mathematical and uh, the non-environmental impacting jobs have become so popular. Yeah. Jim, it's always good to talk to you. This is a great and an enlightening conversation. I'll post it up. Your last one, by the way, that we did got a heck of a lot of hits on it. So people are listening. Um, if uh, these are a lot of fun, yeah, they are, and it, it's sort of in my mind, it's a catharsisism. I never can get that word out to of um, clearing off your mind what you used to know and starting to think about what you need to know to exist for the next year, month, day, decade, whatever time frame you want. Um, before we break, any observations that you'd like to make on your end that we didn't go over? No, I hope the new uh, Macron variant uh, uh, fades away and doesn't become another disruptive COVID-19 event because uh, cases were increasing without it following the pattern of last year uh, as we got into the winter and holiday months and the like. So uh, that's the, the downside of, of looking forward. Although, again, New Jersey... You know, the last month, uh, I think it's, I sent one of the slides to you. We started the year like a lamb. We had 600 jobs uh, in January uh, 2021. And now it looks like we're going out like a lion. Uh, in October, uh, the job growth uh, in this is about 30,000 uh, and 20 or 30,000, somewhere in there, about 25 more than January. Uh, so in the pan pre-pandemic math, job growth at scale would have produced a happy dance uh, by the Department of Labor in Trenton and in the governor's office. Uh, but statistics uh, in, the, in the pandemic era are all kinds of, uh, all stretched out and elongated. But again, the economy is compared to January, uh, has been accelerating in the second half of the year. So uh, the new COVID-19 variant has negative impact. Uh, we're gonna go out like a lion into 2022. That's a great forecast. I mean, that's a great place to end this conversation. Um, Jim, I'm gonna post all the information I posted last time. I'll, I'll send you a copy of, of uh, where the people can find your publications on sewer and whatever. Uh, and I really appreciate you spending this hour with us. Um, it's enlightening. It's encouraging. I mean, there's yeah, a lot to be considered, but there's a lot of things that we're not even thinking about that hard yet that are even more impactful coming down the line. So I think it's it's been great sharing these thoughts with you. Great. Thank you very much. No. Look forward to the next one. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Wow, I think you'll agree there was a ton of information in the 45 minutes or so that Professor Hughes spent with us. I enjoyed talking with him on a semi-annual basis and giving updates like these. Thank you for listening in. One of the biggest decisions in your lifetime is buying or selling a house. Choosing a realtor with strong client communication, technology, and marketing skills will dramatically improve your chance of success. That's why Hunterdon and Somerset's residents rely on Joe Peters. Joe believes his clients deserve a smooth and seamless experience, not a roller coaster ride. As a Coldwell Banker sales associate with 20 years of experience, he's helped hundreds of people to achieve their goals and dreams, no matter where they were in the buying or selling process. Here's what his satisfied customers have to say. Joe guided us through the process of selling our home and made a complicated transaction appear seamless. Joe is diligent and responsive without being pushy and truly keeps his client's best interest in mind. He would return calls within minutes if he didn't pick up. Joe accomplishes this by approaching every transaction from a business perspective. Initially, he tries to fully understand your goals and dreams and make them his own. Then he takes the mass amount of data that's available and distills it down to a few understandable action points. And finally, he controls the entire process through technology and marketing. The end result to you is a smooth, rewarding customer experience. Let Joe show you how to take his professional expertise and put it to work for you. To contact Joe, go to jpeters.com. You can call 908-238-0118 or text to 908-304-4660.